Hello, all, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. Um, today, I am Dr. Carla Ionescu, and today we are going to talk about the Goddess Persephone. This is a bonus episode. As you know, we were supposed to do the finale, but um, I went on this retreat uh, for Persephone in Wales, and we started talking about Persephone. I was doing a bit of a lecture on Persephone. And then we talked about it after. And I just thought that I had perhaps not given her as much credit as she deserved in my podcast on Demeter and Persephone. So uh, in my episode, sorry. And so you know that I've done, if you've uh, listened to some of my episodes, you know that I've done an episode on Demeter and Persephone, which was fantastic. I was really happy with it. Uh, but then I thought about it and I was like, hmm, did I really give Persephone the clout uh, that she really deserves? And so I thought, hey, you know, uh, we're coming to the end of season one right before the finale. And um, why not do a bonus episode on Persephone? Uh, there's a lot of interest around the queen of the underworld and the queen of darkness and I and fertility and light. And, uh, and I was really inspired by this, uh, by the response at this retreat to Persephone that I thought, hey, let's do a little bit of work on her. And so welcome. If you are new to my podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. My PhD is in ancient history, but my, the main focus and the love of my life is the goddess Artemis. I wrote a book called She Who Hunts um, on the Greek Artemis. I am in the process of writing a book on the Ephesian Artemis, and I'm even going to do, I'm collecting some data on um, Artemis in Sicily and Syracuse. And um, from a passionate perspective, I'm actually working on a travel kind of book, which is going to be called In Search of Artemis, of some of the adventures I've had with the goddess looking for the goddess, trying to find her temples, trying to find her rituals and trying to find her. And then in fact, her finding me over and over again um, in some really interesting and fun ways. So I hope that you will enjoy all of my work. Um, you could say that since I've published this book on She Who Hunts um, and the reaction to it has been so welcoming and so wonderful that I feel like this is a bit of a calling for me to explore her and share um, her and expose her worship and her following and the locations of her worship and really maybe bring awareness to how popular she was, how powerful she was, and um, how influential she was, actually. Um, so thank you for joining me. And that's a little bit about me. Um, you can find out more about me by following me at any of my social media uh, under Artemis Expert. Uh, I say Artemis Expert because I am one of the few scholars, academic scholars that is working on Artemis in the world right now, um, which is uh, great, but also sometimes a bit challenging because um, you're kind of walking around in the dark a bit. Um, and that is not to say that things were not written about Artemis. They were, but a lot of them are either dated or have a 
particular kind of bias or dismissal of the goddess. And in fact, actually bringing back, bring you back to Persephone, uh, which is the topic of our episode today. Uh, I feel like Persephone's had a little bit of that as well. I feel like she's a bit overshadowed by Demeter, by her mother. And um, she's also in this interesting uh, situation or category as maiden, as Corey, of course, as maiden. And so sometimes I feel like she's a bit dismissed as the daughter, while Demeter, of course, is a very is, is a power to be reckoned with, as she should be. Uh, Demeter is a very powerful divinity, powerful Titan slash Olympian. But Persephone, I think, deserves perhaps more credit than we have given her. Um, especially in, in our modern understanding of her. Yeah. Um, so as you can see, if you're watching me, I am in my classrooms at the university where I teach in one of my classrooms. We just had a class um, on some goddess um, and ancient history uh, and ritual uh, dates, more or less. Um, and so I thought I would record this podcast while I'm here. And then I have another class in a little bit. Uh, so uh, it's perfect timing, I think, for for talking about um, the goddess. So if you're watching this on YouTube, I am going to share with you my slides. And again, I always say this. Um, I like to share the slides. You don't have to. You don't have to um, watch it if you don't want to, because I will describe everything that is um, in the slides. So you don't have to feel like you're missing something if you're listening to this in your car, uh, which actually I hope that you are listening to this in your car too. Um, but I'm a visual learner and I like visual things. And also I like artifacts, right? Um, in fact, for those of you who have been with me for the last 19 episodes, you know that my goal is to travel the world looking for goddesses, looking for um, places of worship of women's rituals, and sharing that via social media, via travel vlogs, via et cetera, with everyone who perhaps does not have the opportunity or cannot travel to see these sites. So one of my really favorite things to do is to go out there and find these rare places um, and videotape, you know, <laughs> film a lot of it um, and then share it with you all. Um, and so I hope that you're enjoying some of those videos. I have I apologize because I have so many, but I'm not like a video person in the sense of putting things together. I want to do a little like document mini series about things. But again, uh, <laughs> being a scholar means that you're often broke and that you often have to teach a lot in order to eat and pay your rent. And so I teach a lot in the fall and the winter. And uh, that usually takes up a lot of my time. Um, and so um, I'm a little bit slower, I guess, in the in the creative social media side. So I hope that you have patience with me and that you continue following me and uh, sharing these episodes with anyone you think might enjoy them. Um, and, um, and hopefully one day very soon, I will be able to follow my passion and uh, bring you all of the travels for all of the goddesses that you might find fa fascinating. And so this episode is titled Persephone, Queen of Darkness. And as you can see around my head, it says uh, bonus episode 20. Yeah? I'm very excited. I always say this, but you know, I'm very excited to do the finale as well. I've, I've been uh, collecting all of your questions 
uh, Belle Goddesses. So I'm very excited to film that next week um, and to talk a little more about your interests in the goddess. So let's begin a bit with Persephone. Um, I thought I'd share some images of her here. Now, if you're in Toronto, I know many of you are probably not in Toronto, but if you're in Toronto, uh, the statue of Corey, you might have seen it on my social media, is visiting Toronto right now uh, from Athens. And you can still see the red in her hair. Uh, there's like a red paint. Her hair is braided, twisted, um, and it's red. And I find that fascinating because on a personal level, I had a vision of Persephone sort of in my mind. Um, well, of course, in my mind, where else would I have a vision? But in my mind, I always see Persephone as sort of red haired, like that she has sort of flaming hair. And when I went to see this particular statue at the ROM in Toronto, and I saw the red hair, I thought, oh, wow, or the, the hair is painted red. Now, that's not always the case. Um, there are other depictions of Persephone where we are not sure what color that her hair is. So, you know, but um, but it's kind of it was kind of an interesting serendipitous connection uh, made there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit uh, about Persephone. So Persephone is the daughter of Demeter and Zeus. Yeah. Um, and she, of course, as we'll see, becomes the wife of Hades and the queen of the underworld. Yeah. Now, she is a dual deity, which is what I find super fascinating uh, and why I want to talk about her as an individual rather than just as the daughter, uh, because she is both the goddess of darkness and the underworld and death, but also a goddess of fertility, rebirth, because she comes back in the spring, and life. So she actually reminds me of Hell from Norse... Um, from Norse mythology, um, if you've ever seen a representation of Hel, H-E-L, um, she is a goddess that is half dead, half alive, and is a goddess of the Norse sort of underworld. Only the Norse underworld is hot, is cold. Actually, now that I think of it, the Greek underworld is also cold and described as cold and wet. Uh, I suppose for the Greeks who live in sunlight most of the year, cold and wet is... Um, the most uncomfortable one could be. And I, I second that opinion as well. Yeah. So Persephone is an interesting figure because she is literally a sort of a division between life and death. She embodies those two responsibilities. Um, and so this is what I mean in the sense that she is a bit underrated because those are the two main experiences of, hum of the human condition. We live and we die. We're born and we die. Um, and she is a goddess of both of those realms. So it's really, really uh, fascinating that um, that she rules uh, above all of those uh, aspects. Um, so she has a she has a a Roman counterpart, uh, Proserpine, um, and that's sort of her name in the Roman. Um, that is her name in the Roman pantheon. And she's always known, like I said, as Kore, which really means just a girl or a maiden. Sometimes I think about this, um, about Kore, because, you know, I wonder, since Kore is literally a girl or a maiden, it could be any girl or any maiden. And so I wonder to myself sometimes, does this mean that the Greeks were aware that any girl or any maiden may have the power over life and death, right? That's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, 
there is some history to Persephone's name, which is kind of fascinating. She may have been an older goddess than the Greeks. Um, and there is a, scho a scholar, uh, Rudolf Wachter, who talks about the fact that Persephone's first name, oh, first part of her name, Persepho, uh, may reflect a very rare term attested in the Rig Veda in Sanskrit and the Avesta, meaning a sheaf of corn or an ear of grain. So there is this kind of um, pre-Greek, deeply archaic sound and and spelling to her name that may even be uh, Proto-Indo-European. Proto so, you know, long, long before, almost thousands of years before the Greeks name her or claim her, uh, she may have been already a goddess of corn or a goddess of grain, you know, which is uh, similar. Um, and so, again, she may have been a lot more powerful than what we have given her credit for, uh, particularly in the modern world or in like popular culture and in modern film, right? Where she's always either just the wife of Hades or the daughter of Demeter, you know? So let's talk a little bit about how she became the wife of Hades. And at the end of this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about gray romance, which is um, this concept of um, gray characters. I was going to say bad characters, but gray characters doing gray acts. And the rest of us sort of knowing that, but yet sort of still rooting for them. Yeah. So it's a really interesting, I think, um, position for 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 this story so the object the abduction myth is probably pretty familiar to all of you although there are um different versions so i thought i would read you a little version okay um although we'll talk about some differences persephone uh who was also titled Corate, like i said as was the goddess of spring's bounty once upon a time when she was playing in a flowery meadow with her nymph companions Cora was seized by Hades and carried off to the underworld as his bride. Her mother Demeter despaired at her disappearance and searched for her throughout the world, accompanied by the goddess Hecate, bearing torches. So there's a lot of imagery. Now, we know that Hecate is a torch bearer, but there's a lot of images of torches being held by Demeter, even by Persephone, um, by Artemis. Lots of goddesses hold torches. And a torch is such a fascinating symbol because, of course, it's a symbol of light in the darkness, of knowledge, of fire, of uh, secret knowledge, of underworld knowledge. Uh, it's also a, a symbol of freedom, because once you have fire, you can survive. Um, and if you think about, for example, the Statue of Liberty, what does she hold in her hand? A torch. So a lot of that symbolism continues today. And it's fascinating that um, Demeter and Hecate are looking for Persephone all over the world, on top of the world, not yet the underworld, using or holding torches. Yeah? When Demeter learns that Zeus had conspired in her daughter's abduction, she was furious and refused to let the earth fruit or give fruit until Persephone was returned. Zeus finally relented, but because the girl had tasted the food of Hades, the food of the underworld, which is a handful of pomegranate seeds, she was forced to forever spend a part of the year with her husband in the underworld. 
Her annual return to the earth in spring was marked by the flowering of the meadows and the sudden growth of the new grain. Her return to the underworld in winter conversely saw the dying down of plants and the halting of growth. Okay. Now, Persephone's abduction is mentioned just briefly by Hesiod in his Theogony, but is told in considerable detail in the Homeric hymn to Demeter. Okay. Now, it is said that Zeus may have permitted Hades to kidnap or take Persephone because he knew that Demeter would never agree to it. Yeah. Um, and there are other stories in which Persephone is hanging out with Artemis and Athena and other oceanids or nymphs as well. Um, and that Hades kind of bursts through the earth uh, in a chariot with black horses, which you kind of see in this image here. Um, and he takes her, yeah, by force. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of interpretations of the force of this abduction, yeah? Uh, and we'll talk actually about them um, in a minute. Um, and so this is part why Demeter is so furious. What's really fascinating, and I think I've talked about this before, is that Demeter is the first and only divinity that really brings the entire Olympic pantheon to their knees, as well as the earth to their knees um, for her daughter. And that really shows the power of Demeter, but also the power inherited by Persephone as well. Yeah. So these are very powerful female figures or goddess figures. Okay, um, And of course, Zeus had to relent because nothing would grow. And so the cries of the humans starving uh, were reaching him. And he was just like, okay, this is getting to be really annoying. These humans are really bugging me. Um, it's time to do something. Um, and so he sends Hermes and Hermes retrieves her. Yeah. Um, there are locations, different locations for the, um, where the abduction actually took place. Okay. Um, one of them, for example, the Sicilians in Sicily, uh, believe that she would that her meadows were somewhere near Enna. Uh, the Cretans thought that their own island's Crete was the scene of the abduction. And of course, the Eleusinians, as we'll talk about the Eleusinian mysteries in a minute, also said that Persephone descended into Hades from their town. Uh, later abduction, uh, later stories talk about abductions in places like Attica near Athens and other places. Yeah. Homer actually mentions Anision or Mission. Uh, which is most likely a mythical place. It's not a real place that can be found today. Yeah. Um, and so one of the contributions that scholars and, uh, and other sort of followers of Demeter and Hecate in particular, uh, as well as Persephone, have brought to light is that it is very likely that Persephone was already what we call a Chthonic uh, a chthonic goddess, which is a goddess that deals with the night, the darkness, the underworld, um, the the otherworldly. Yeah, and so it's possibly it's possible that she was already a goddess that was involved with death and afterlife, and so this kidnapping uh, was a way to take her power and give it to Hades. Right. So instead of saying, you know, Persephone was the queen of the underworld already. Um, and Hades was kind of her consort uh, or became her consort. Uh, what happened in, as Greek mythology developed, the Greeks built their mythology around what was already present. 
um, was that they made it seem as though the, the power shifted the other way. So that Hades is in control of the underworld and he abducts Persephone. And then that's how she becomes so powerful. So um, there is some mystery around um, this abduction, right? Some people see it as a violent abduction, which, um, and I think I've said this before, which reflects the ways that uh, young women or Kores were married off by their fathers without the permission of their mothers and without even their knowledge, the, the knowledge of their mothers. And so in the Demeter and Persephone episode that I did, uh, we talked a lot about angry mothers or grieving mothers and how this may have reflected the experience of Greek women and Greek daughters, Greek mothers and Greek daughters. Um, and so that could also be very likely um, or it could also it could also work in the sense that this experience legitimizes the practice of patriarchal marriage, uh, which is giving the the daughter away. And often there are examples or cases where fathers did give their daughters to their uncles. Um, you know, it's very a uh, house of the dragons. Uh, if you watch House of the Dragons, you know, I often get people who ask questions like, where does George Martin get all these ideas, you know, or all these things? And I always think, well, these are already in our cultural sort of unconscious mythology uh, or collective, sorry, mythology. And so it's not difficult to pull um, ideas and examples. And actually, now that I'm thinking of it, you know, if you watch House of the Dragon, Damon and Rhaenyra are very much the... Um, Hades and Persephone. And what's really ironic, and I'm sorry to go off on the side uh, tangent, but what's really ironic is that Rhaenyra demands that her uncle take her away um, and kidnap her. Um, so really fascinating how relevant I think ancient mythology is in our cultural, continued cultural fascination with almost taboo relationships. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we get to the gray matter. Um, or the great character. So let's talk a little bit about the symbolism. Yeah, what is the symbolism? So in classical Greek art and in later art, Persephone is portrayed often as a venerable queen. She is almost always fully robed. She carries a scepter and a sheaf of wheat. Uh, sometimes she's she's often depicted with her mother, although through the Roman period, as we'll see, she's often depicted with her husband, um, Hades. Uh, Demeter also carries the scepter and chief if the two of them are together. And Persephone is often holding a special type of a four-tipped torch, which was used in the Eleusinian Mysteries. Um, in many representations, she's holding a pomegranate or sometimes even a seed of a pomegranate. And this symbolizes our marriage to the underworld, but it also symbolizes the fertility. The pomegranate is a symbol of fertility. And it's it's a really basic symbol in the sense that it is literally a round red fruit, which could look like a womb or a breast. You know, anything that's going to round and red is often associated with um, fertility. But what makes... Uh, pomegranate is so interesting is that inside of them they have these little 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 red seeds um and so there is this again the symbolism of the seed literally um and the seed literally representing uh, fertility and in the stories in which persephone eats a few excuse me a few seeds there is this implication that 
this may have been a, a consummation of not a consummation with Hades, but a consummation between her and the underworld, um, a, a, a sort of a bond that is created from which she can no longer escape or give up her commitment. So she becomes sort of, she, we're said she's forced to stay in the underworld, but we're not, we don't really know, right? Some mythologies say that um, she is tricked in eating the pomegranate. Some say that, you know, she's there, she's there for a while. And so she's eating the pomegranate without knowing that it, um, it will keep her there. Um, since she is the queen of the underworld and she becomes the queen of the underworld, many people, many Greeks were afraid of her. So what's really fascinating is that she has a lot of euphemistic and friendly names. So this is why she's often referred to as the maiden and the mistress. She's sometimes known as the pure one, the venerable one, even the great goddess. Um, and because she's associated with her mother, they are often referred to as the two Demeters or the two goddesses or the mistresses. And so um, it, there's something about naming, right? So in order to appease her or to make her not so frightening, the Greeks would not call her exactly by her name, uh, but she would, uh, but they would call her the mistress um, or the pure one or the venerable one, right? Um, and so while she's in the underworld, as we'll see when we look at some of the stuff that happens when she's in the underworld, she doesn't seem particularly miserable. Um, in fact, I, at the retreat, I mentioned to uh, the audience, I said, you know, Persephone's really living her best life. She's really living the best of both worlds because in one way, she spends, let's say, whatever, a third of the year, three, four months with her husband as a queen and ruler. And then she takes a little vacation and comes and hangs out with her mother and spends the summer with her mother on top of the world. Um in the summer, in the sun, and then she returns again to her husband. And so she's really living a very comfortable, cool life, right? Um, I mean, now that I think about her, even as her queen responsibilities, um, she has a bit of a break from both in the sense that she has a break from being the queen of the underworld when she's with her mother. When she's with her mother, she's part of the fertility rituals. And she has a break from that when she goes into the underworld. Um, so truly, I think Persephone is is living her best life, or maybe it's just my my best life, right? I I would love to to you know to uh, live a life in which you're doing half the year and this way and half the year and this way, and you have the best of both worlds. I think we all would. Yeah. Um, interestingly, actually, um, Persephone, there's a there's an obscure myth, okay, that I found. Um, that Persephone may have created mankind, okay? So it's an obscure myth. It's credited. It's accredited with the creation of mankind from clay, but instead of Prometheus, Prometheus is the one that creates mankind from clay traditionally in Greek mythology. Um, there's a, a divine dispute that ensues over which God should possess mankind, yeah? And with the result that... Um, Mankind is awarded to Zeus and Gaia in life and to Persephone in death. So I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's from uh, Pseudo-Hyginus, uh, the Fabulae, which is a uh, number 220. It's um, He's a mythographer that lived around uh, the second century CE. And he writes this. He says, when Persephone was crossing a certain river, she saw some clay, clayey mud, clayey mud, she took it up and thoughtfully, she took it up thoughtfully and began to fashion a man. 
While she was pondering on what she had done, Zeus came up. Persephone asked him to give the image life, and Zeus readily gave this. When Persephone wanted it, wanted to give it her name, Zeus forbade it, and he said that his name should be given to mankind. But while they were disputing this name, Gaia arose and said that a mankind should have her name since she has given of it from her own body. Uh, and then they went to Cronus for to, to judge, and he decided for them. He said, Cronus decides, he says, Zeus, since you gave him life, okay, presumably he was the one given the control of the fate of men, let Persephone receive the body after death, since Persephone fashioned mankind, and let earth possess him, mankind as long as he lives. Um, and since there is a controversy about his name, let him be called Homo since he seems to be made from hummus. Yeah. So this is an obscure little creation myth that I found uh, from second century, uh, from a second century Roman um, writer. Uh, but really fascinating that uh, Prometheus is not even in this story at all. Um, now, like I said, the traditional idea is that Prometheus creates man from clay um, and uh, he gives them fire from Zeus and Zeus finds out and it's all Prometheus is punished. You know that story. But uh, what an interesting little side story uh, that we found. And there isn't a lot of history around this little piece of finding. And so it was hard to trace it back and see where it had originated. But I would not be surprised if there was some popularity to this myth that maybe has been lost over time because Persephone certainly receives the dead alongside with Hades, but certainly she is in charge of uh, receiving the dead. So as queen of the underworld, um, she is often called the dreaded Persephone. Yeah? Uh, and like I said, it was forbidden often to speak her name, yeah? which is interesting how many times I've said it just in this podcast uh, and how many times I said it over the weekend. Yeah, uh, But there is this, um, like I said, ar archaic connection to her being the mistress. And there, excuse me, there is an old Catholic divinity, uh, Despoina, which really just means the mistress, uh, whose real name could never be revealed to anyone except those initiated in her mysteries. And a lot of scholars conflate Persephone with Despoina, even Demeter with Despoina. There's a lot of uh, goddesses that are called mistresses. And so even Artemis is called the mistress of animals. Um, and so there is often this almost a bit of confusion if you're looking back at how many goddesses are called mistresses. But for the Greeks, this was not confusing because for them, when they called to the mistress, they knew which one they were talking to. And so for them, it's uh, it was pretty clear. Yeah. Um, Sometimes Persephone is called the goddess, the daughter of Zeus and the river Styx, because that's the river that forms the boundary between the earth and the underworld. Um, and in Homer's epics, of course, she appears always together with Hades in the underworld, and she shares control over the dead. Yeah. Um, she is encountered by Odysseus, and actually Odysseus calls her the dreaded Persephone when he goes into Tartarus. Um, and he has to sacrifice a ram to the goddess, uh, and the ghosts of the dead drink the blood of the sacrificed animal. And so there is a lot of respect that is given to her as the dreaded Persephone, as the queen of the underworld. Um, and there were groves that were sacred to her 
um, that were seen as um, spaces where the house of Persephone existed. And by that, I mean, there were sort of honored spaces for Persephone, because everyone, of course, wanted to make sure that in their afterlife, they appeased not just Hades, uh, but the queen of the underworld. Yeah. And her central myth, of course, is the uh, context for the secret rites at the at Eleusis, which is what we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, there's a few stories, just a few side stories that I thought I would share with you. Before Persephone was abducted, for example, by Hades, there is a story that says that a shepherd named Eumolopus um, and a swineherd, Eubulus, saw a girl in a black chariot driven by an invisible driver being carried off into the earth, which had violently opened up. Eubulus was feeding his pigs at the opening to the underworld, and his swine were swallowed by the earth along with her. Um, and so this is an aspect of Persephone's story and the relation of pigs being swallowed to the underworlds that are going to be part of the ancient rites of uh, Thesmophoria, which we're going to talk about as well, as well as the Aleutian mis Mysteries. Um, in some versions, there's another version in which um, As Ascalopus informed the other deities that Persephone had eaten the pomegranate seeds. And as punishment for informing Hades, he was pinned under a heavy rock in the underworld by either Persephone or Demeter. When Demeter and her daughter were reunited, the earth flourished with vegetation and color. But for some months of the year, when Persephone returns to the underworld, the earth once again is barren, is a barren realm. Um, and so there is this idea that there's this little story that someone had told on Persephone uh, that went to Hades and said uh, she ate the pomegranate seeds. Now, that's really weird because um, there's other stories that say Hades tricked her into it. And so this is what I mean about the different versions, because if you think we are obsessed with Hades and Persephone today, uh, the Greeks were also really fascinated and even romanticized uh, the relationship there was something romantic about uh, about this relationship. Yeah. In an earlier version of the abduction myth, Hecate is the one who rescues Persephone. Uh, there's an attic red figure bell crater about 440 BCE at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where Persephone is rising up as if the stairs from the cleft in the earth uh, open up. And then Hermes stands aside and Hecate is holding two torches and looks back as she leads her to Demeter. Um, so there is this ancient image of sort of Hecate having gone down into the underworld uh, alongside Hermes with these torches, found Persephone and brought her back. And so this relationship of the three goddesses, Demeter, Hecate and Persephone is a very complex, complicated relationship because um they are all these three goddesses are cathartic goddesses or cathartic goddesses, and they are goddesses of darkness and light, um, night and day, right? Winter and spring. Um, and also the fact that they're three goddesses, which make up the three uh, mother maiden crones. So Kori is the maiden, Demeter is the mother, Hecate is the crone. Um, and so there is layers and layers and layers of um, complexity here that I'm not sure that the story of Persephone, when we just tell it as sort of the abduction by Hades, really clarifies for us or 
I'm not sure that we receive this level of context around the importance of this myth. So, you know, story um, when we're just studying the myth itself, I guess is what I'm saying is that there are multi layers of cultural implications that perhaps we don't have as much um, time to study when we're just studying the myth. A very influential queen. I really like this image here where she's divided in half between dark and light. Because again, like I said, that's what really makes Persephone um, a unique character. What also makes her really interesting is that she's the only married figure or goddess or Olympian that uh, does not cheat on her husband. I mean, she does fall in love with Adonis, but okay. Um, but does not have these sort of affairs, nor does Hades really have any affairs um, outside of his relationship with Persephone, which is really, really very, very interesting. Um, also, what's really fascinating is unlike Hera, I guess, although Hera does have quite a bit of power, certainly in the early period, um, Persephone is not just consort, she is queen, and she is given authority in the underworld. I would dare to say egalitarian authority. I don't know if I'd say equal authority, but definitely egalitarian authority, uh, because she does really make some decisions. So I thought I'd give you some example. For example, after a plague hit uh, Ionia, which was a place um, in ancient Greece, its people asked the Oracle of Delphi, and they were told they went to the consul to to con consort. <laughs> uh, they went to consult the Oracle of Delphi, and they were told they needed to appease the anger of the king and queen of the underworld by means of sacrifice. Two maidens, uh, Menippe and Metioki, who were the daughters of Orion, were chosen, and they agreed to be offered to the two gods in order to save their country. So this is human sacrifice, ritual sacrifice. As the two of them were led to the altar to be sacrificed, Persephone and Hades took pity on them and turned them into comets instead. So you see how Persephone and Hades are equal here. No? Uh, as I mentioned, Adonis before, Adonis was an exceed exceedingly, exceedingly beautiful mortal. We've talked about him before, uh, and Persephone falls in love with him. Um, remember that after he was he was Aphrodite's son and after he was born um no sorry after he was born um he was entrusted to Persephone to raise but then when Persephone saw how beautiful he was um she fell in love with him and so did Aphrodite and so there was this sort of back and forth where he would have to, they made an agreement that he would have to live with Persephone for half the year or whatever she was in the other world and then uh, live with Aphrodite for the other part of the world when she was up, up in the, I guess, sunlight. Uh, but Adonis actually was really in love um, with um, Aphrodite. And so he um, he asked the moon goddess Selene, yeah, um, to help him escape Persephone. Um, and so Persephone was kind of hurt, but she didn't actually do anything about it in the sense of, you know, she didn't harm him in any way. Um, Minthe, for example, was as another story of a Naiad myth, a nymph of the river Coctus. Uh, and she became a mistress to Persephone's husband, Hades. So this is the only time that you get a little mistress myth. Okay. But many of the myths say that she threatened to become a mistress, okay? 
Um, and so that she kept saying that um, she would seduce Hades and that she would, you know, entice him to her bed. Um, and Persephone found out before the actual act occurs. So it depends which myth you want to believe. And Persephone was so angry that Minthe tried to seduce her husband that she turned her into the mint plant. You know? Of course, there are other more vicious versions of the story in which Persephone tears Minthe to, to pieces for sleeping with Hades. Um, and it is Hades who turns him who, who turns her into the mint plant to kind of save her, right? In another in another version of the myth, of the same myth, Demeter is the one that is so angry um, at Minthe for trying to shame, like embarrass her daughter or ruin her daughter's marriage, that she kills Minthe over the insult to her daughter. Uh, so some really interesting stories um, that come out or mythologies that perhaps we haven't heard that much about in the past with Persephone. Uh, she also has, she Persephone also hosts people in the underworld a lot. Um, and there's numerous, numerous myths of uh, heroes and uh, soldiers and others that go down uh, and visit her. Of course, one of the most famous one is uh, Orpheus. Um, she is actually the one who permits Orpheus to leave with Eurydice. And she's so enticed by his um, uh, playing and his music that it's Persephone who decides to release a dead soul or a dead person back to life so sort of a, a rebirth right a reanimation a rebirth um she's also the one to permit heracles to leave the underworld with cerebrus uh, the three-headed dog so again cerebrus is the guard of the underworld is a massive massive uh member of the protection of the underworld and yet it is um persephone um, who receives Heracles like a brother and allows him to carry off the dog. Uh, and also we're told that it's actually um, Persephone who helps Heracles um, free Theseus from his bonds, right? So Theseus is bound in the underworld. Um, she also really uh, grants um, favor to Sisyphus, okay? So Sisyphus um, is an interesting story. Sisyphus is the son of Aeolus, um, and he comes to, to Hades after persuading with wily words Persephone, who impairs the minds of mortals and brings them to forgetfulness, right? So uh, there's this um, um, tradition that when you arrive in the underworld, Persephone may help you forget who you were in life, okay? But uh, Sisyphus is um, a hero who is able to overcome that. Right, so he remembers who he is. No one else has ever um, reached right death's door or gone down into death to the shadowy place of death and passed the black gates, which hold back the souls of the dead for all their protestations. Uh, but even from here, the hero Sisyphus returned to the light of the sun by his own cleverness, and so Persephone. Um, is so taken with his cleverness and his wittiness and his ability to um, remember who he is, but also he has like a wit about him that she says, no, you you have died and you have come down, but you deserve to go back up. And so she releases him and he gets to return back to life. Um, 
And so there's a lot of stories in which Persephone makes these decisions. Now, these are these may appear to you as minor decisions, but the underworld is not a place that you can go and come back from, right? This is a, an extreme level of power to be able to return a person back to corporeal life, right? You're not just letting go of the soul to go wander around, you know, up at the top. You are returning uh, bodies into life. Okay? Um, so it's not a wonder that she it, she was so celebrated, that she was feared by many, and that she was central to rituals around life and death. Yeah, I don't want to say that she was central to the life to the everyday lives or festivals of the Greeks or later the Romans, because I think that there are specific rituals. We're going to go over three of them. There are specific rituals in which she was worshipped widely and passionately um, and, uh, uh, what do you call it, wealthily. That's not really a word, sorry. But, uh, but her celebrations were extravagant and required a great deal of wealth and sacrifice. And so there are those. Uh, but I, I don't want to say that she was a part of everyday life or of rituals around everyday life um, for the for the ancients that worshipped her. So let's talk a little bit about her uh, festivals. We're going to start with um, the Thesmophoria. So the myth of a goddess being abducted is probably pre-Greek, to be honest. Um, there is a renowned scholar of ancient Sumer, Samuel Noah Kramer. If you've ever read his stuff or come across his stuff, he's really fascinating. He's posited that the Greek story of the abduction of Persephone may have derived from an ancient Sumerian story in which Ereshkigal, which is a Sumerian goddess of the underworld, is abducted by Kor, the primeval dragon. Okay, so this is part of Sumerian mythology and forced to become the ruler of the underworld against her will. So this myth predates, of course, the Greek myth, myth of Persephone. And um, Kramer makes the argument that uh, this is a much older story than um, it's not invented by the Greeks. It's basically what he's really saying. Um Walter Burkett also claims that Persephone is an old Chthonic deity of the agricultural communities who receives the soul of the dead, the souls of the dead in the earth and acquires power over fertility over the soil of which she reigns. Um, and so there are a lot of stories and a lot, there's a lot of um, research that shows that in an agrarian culture, an agricultural culture, there have always been a goddess of grain that actually embodies both life and death. And you can imagine that if you ever farm or if you ever grow your own plants or if you ever grow anything, the connection of life and death and the importance of fertility and the importance of renewal each year, that if that's your life and that's your livelihood, um, that becomes, of course, central. And so having a divinity to which you pray for fertility, for wealth, for et cetera, it, is quite natural, actually. And so it probably doesn't sound too off or too unusual uh, to most people. Yeah. Uh, so the cults of Persephone and Demeter in the uh, Eleusinian mysteries and in the Thesmophoria were based on older agrarian cults. 
Okay. So the rituals that are performed here have older or pre-Greek roots. Yeah. They were closely guarded secrets, which is really fascinating uh, because they were believed to offer those, the initiates, a better afterlife than uh, the miserable afterlife of the underworld. And so there is some evidence that these cults come out of a Mycenae, the Mycenaean age. Uh, and Kareni, who is, again, another fantastic scholar, asserts that some of these pra some of these practices come from also all the way back to Minoan, uh, Minoan Crete. And to me, as some of you know, um, I feel very connected to Crete and in a very visceral way. Um, it wouldn't surprise me because a lot of the statues that were found in Crete, a lot of the caves that are found in Crete, um, there is a sort of cathodic or cathodic um, connection, mm, almost like the connection is in almost every ritual and almost every festival. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me at all uh, that uh, Persephone and the others are as old as Minoan Crete or even before back to Sumer. So let's talk about the Thesmophoria. I'm going to talk a little bit about what is this religious festival and kind of what happened. Um, so you have an idea of, of how Persephone and Demeter are celebrated. Now, to be fair, all um, actually two of these, um, the Eleusinian Mysteries and the Thesmophoria, are celebrations for both. Um, Persephone and Demeter. The last one that I'm going to talk about is the Anthesphoria is actually just for Persephone, which is kind of fun. So I'm going to leave that for last. So let's talk a little bit about the Thesmophoria. Um, the Thesmophoria, like I said, is um, a religious festival that was held in honor of goddess Demeter and Persephone. And it was held annually, uh, mostly around the time of late autumn. Yeah. Um, and Sometimes it's actually associated with the harvest or instead of the harvest. And it was always celebrated as an agricultural fertility celebration. Yeah. And this festival is one of the most widely festivals celebrated in all of the Greek world. Yeah. And it was only restricted to adult women. Okay. So I always call this the women's festivals or the women's party. Only adult women were allowed to attend this festival. And the festival was, uh, everything that was practiced during the festival was supposed to be kept secret. Um, and so some of the most extensive resources that we have are from a scholar called Lucian, who explains uh, the festival in Aristophanes, um, who explains the festival. And then Aristophanes, he actually wrote a play called the Thesmophoria, yeah, I can't say this right, Thesmophoria Sue, bleh, which uh, parodies the festival, Okay. Uh, I said that wrong, so sorry about that. Um, but it was one of the most widespread ancient Greek festivals, and it was celebrated every every year. Yeah. Uh, it even dates back to uh, before the Greeks settled in Ionia. Uh, some people argue that we can date it back to the 11th century BCE, so that's almost 3,200 years ago. Um, there are those, oh, sorry. We know more about the practices from the practices of Athens, uh, but there's also some information of this festival from Sicily and Eritrea. So lots of, so you can see how widespread it was around the Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, 
men were forbidden to see or hear about the rituals. Okay. Um, it's unclear whether it was all free women that celebrated the Thesmophoria or only arist um, aristocratic women. Um, Non-citizen and unmarried women may not have been at the festival. Now, there are some stories and some scholars who say that actually non-citizen women or slave women were allowed to participate in, the, in this festival um, and that actually slave women may have been given the day or the time off for this festival. Um, so again, it's unclear who was allowed to celebrate at the festival. However, um, we know for sure it was all adult women. Yeah. Um, sometimes, for example, like at Delos and Thebes, the festival may have been ha in late, late summer, again, close to the harvest. Um, and it was a 10-day long event. So a 10-day festival just for women and fertility and harvest and food and drink. Good, good times. Yeah. Uh, this festival, of course, com 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 commemorated, why can I not speak today? My apologies. Um, the kidnapping of Persephone by Hades and her return to her mother. Okay. So during this festival, pigs were sacrificed and their remains were put into pits called Megara. This is what Lucian tells us. Uh, an inscription from Delos shows us that part of the cost of the Thesmophoria went towards paying for a, a ritual butcher who performed the sacrifices for the for the festival. Okay. Um, sometimes, some other sources tell us that the women actually performed the um, sacrifices themselves. Yeah. Uh, the, sometime later, the rotten um, remains of these sacrifices were retrieved from the pits by uh, bailers. So this is where sometimes people talk about slave women being allowed to participate in these rituals because there's a lot of work to be done. And since no men were allowed, certainly the aristocratic women did some of the work, but not all of the work. So there are some ideas that different level mm, of classes of women were allowed to participate. Yeah. Um, there was, of course, an altar to Persephone and Demeter. There were cakes that were baked in the shapes of snakes and phalluses. And this, again, has to do with fertility and fertility rites. Um, and whatever was left over from the festival was scattered in the fields where the seeds were being sown, sort of as, as compost, really, um, to ensure a good harvest. Yeah. Um, Walter Burkett talks about how this practice may have been the clearest example in Greek religion of agra agrarian magic. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not clear exactly what happened to the leftovers of the animals or who retrieved them, like I said, or where they were placed. Um, there are stories that the women would butcher the piglets, little piglets, and there'd be sort of this big pit, this megara, um, and they would, you know, they would throw these piglets um, into the pit while the piglets were still bleeding. Um, and so there's, there's, uh, I've heard some of that story, read some of those stories. Um, it's unclear exactly what happens to these piglets once, um, because there were so many, once uh, the festival is over. But many scholars will say that they were used as compost. Um, and so there's a, a few days of the Thesmophoria. The, the very first day 
is known as the as an <clears throat> excuse me anados, which is an ascent. Okay. Um, and so this is an ascent to the shrine of the Thesmophoria. Okay? And this is when they prepared everything, when they um, they elected who, which of the women were going to oversee the celebration, all of this kind of stuff, right? So the uh, and some scholars argue that this is also celebrating the ascent from Persephone uh, of Persephone from the underworld. The second day is called the Nestia, and this is a day of fasting. Okay. And this day is really in honor of Demeter's mourning for her lost daughter. Yeah. Um, and so there is um, a day of, there's no, there's no food. There's a day sort of of sadness. Um, and a day of quietness. Yeah. And we also have uh, Caliginea, which is the third day which is a day that is called beautiful birth. And on this day, women called upon the goddess Caliginia, praying for their own fertility. Yeah. Uh, but Plutarch tells us, for example, that in some places they didn't celebrate this uh, third day because it was seen sort of as an anti-Persephone, uh, not anti-Persephone, but it wasn't honorable to Persephone. But it depends. Uh, many of the festivals across uh, the Greek world and later uh, the Roman world were um, practiced these three days. Yeah? And so in a way, the Thesmophoria is a, a sacrifice. Yeah, actually that's a good, a sacrifice to the goddess of fertility, to the goddess of the harvest, um, and it's sort of a time for women, 10 days for women to get together to honor the loss of mother, daughter, but also to honor the beautiful rebirth um, and to pray for their own fertility and the fertility of their lands or their husband's lands um, and the fertility of their community. So one of the, like I said, one of the most popular and uh, sort of widely celebrated ancient festival that is all women, all for women. Next, we have the Eleusinian Mysteries. Now, the Eleusinian Mysteries are a little bit different because this is a almost like a cultish space. That is, people have to be initiated every, you know, have to be initiated into this cult. Actually, they are a cult. Let's put it honestly, sort of a cult. Um and so there are initiations that happen every year, okay? And they are actually one, the Eleusinian Mysteries are one of the few most secretive cults in ancient Greeks. Um, again, there is some evidence that this may have Mycenaean or Minoan roots and that the cult of these mysteries can be traced back, no, thousands of years or at least a thousand years before the Greeks arrive. Um, and again, interestingly, this, this cult practice also deals with a descent, right? A loss, a search, and then an ascent. Uh, and of course, uh, again, represents uh, the abduction of Persephone, um, the search of Demeter and the return of Persephone. Um, it was a ma major, major festival or a major cult actually, um, and it spread far and wide during the Hellenic area um, and spread late, late into Rome. Um, like I said, 
some religions appear some of the, some of the rituals appear to have connections with um, Minoan Crete and earlier, almost Near East archaic traditions. Yeah. Most of the rites and ceremonies were kept secret, uh, and ha- they have been preserved from any of us finding out what they are. Okay, um, and what we know is that a lot of the rites had to do with Persephone's rebirth, and therefore this idea of immortality of salvation in the afterlife, um, that there is a reward in the afterlife for the initiates. And so kept keeping the um, rites and the ceremony secret became central to achieving salvation. So you can only imagine that if someone tells you, I'm going to give you, um, you know, knowledge of the afterlife, but in order for you to achieve or, or reach the afterlife, in a positive place, not Tartarus, you know, where um, all the bad people go to in the underworld, you must make sure that you keep it a secret. You can imagine how secretive the entire um, community or cult members would have been. Um, So it takes place, of course, um, at Eleusis, where there's a massive uh, temple, and you can still go visit it today. Um, the, the ruins of the temples are still there. There's lots of excavations. Some of the excavations show us that, like I said, this ritual can go back, far, back, back, uh, predating the Greek Dark Ages. So it's quite, quite ancient. Um, and that there may be a private building that is under the Telesterion, which is the um, the main building where the this ceremonies took place, that there's a building underneath that that may predate um Greek occupation. And so many in many ways, I would say that these cult practices were practices that were meant to rise to allow human beings to rise above just human just humanity. So there was a, a purposeful divine elevation, lifting, uplifting, connection, that then, of course, uh, redemption, like I said, the word salvation comes up a lot. And so there is, it's almost like Persephone and Demeter are the saviors. And in fact, actually, Persephone is often called savior in uh, the language around the Eleusinian mysteries. Yeah. Um, and so um, a very, a, a key role in the community, a key role in the community. Yeah. Now, there are two types of mysteries, the lesser and the greater mysteries. And perhaps I'll do an episode on the mysteries themselves, the Eleusinian mysteries, because there is, although they are mysterious and there is a lot of secrecy around it, we do have actually some detail of what happens each night kind of thing and what happens or uh, estimations of what happens. And that is sort of a collaboration of uh, some minute sources like Cicero or... um, a research done on similar Mycenaean cults um, that may have influenced the Eleusinian mysteries. Anyway, long story short, there's a lesser and a greater mystery. There's lots of steps to these mysteries. Um, the lesser mysteries is what you'd have to do first. So you'd have to be initiated into the lesser mysteries. Um, and once you passed or you yet you've been through the lesser mysteries, um, which would take around which would take place around February, March, um, you could 
participate in the greater mysteries. Now, we're told that the lesser mystery took place every year uh, and people were initiated, but the greater mysteries took place every four years. And that was something that was more rare and a lot more complex. Uh, and so I'm not going to go into all the details of um, the mysteries themselves, but I will say that the end goal was that you would access sort of a high enough level within the cult practice or the ceremonial practice that you would see or participate in a ceremony of salvation or in a uh, in a ceremony that um, allows you to experience um, a positive afterlife. Right. So like I said, a lot of these mysteries were had to do with immortality. Now in the beginning, scholars will say they didn't really have to do with immortality. Um, they were really about just having a better afterlife than just being stuck in the underworld with Tartarus. But as the mysteries became more popular and developed, this idea that the, that the afterlife would be pleasant and the idea of the Eleusinian fields in the afterlife develops. Um, and so um, it's almost it almost becomes like a Greek heaven or hell in a sense, but the heaven is also within the underworld. Uh, so it's almost like the world, the underworld becomes divided between a good and a bad place. And the Eleusinian mysteries allow you to enter the Eleusinian fields, uh, which is uh, an afterlife that is, you know, I would say close to a heavenly realm. Yeah. So it's a positive sort of heavenly realm. And then we have the third um, celebration to Persephone, which is the Anthesphoria. Now the Anthesphoria is a religious festival. Um, and it's a religious festival that was held in ancient Greece in honor of Persephone's return from the underworld. Yeah. Um, and it was known to be one of the most beautiful, it was almost like a flower festival. I have a friend who's from Colombia, and she says that every year they do a flower festival. Um, and this is very much that for the Greeks. It's a flower festival. There's music, peaceful celebrations that commemorate the return of Persephone. Um, the goddess of springtime. Uh, it's more. It's um, it's more like a holiday of happiness and purity. Um, Sicilians, for example, in Sicily, uh, celebrated the Anthesphoria widely with lots of flowers. Uh, it was one of their most important celebrations of the year. Again, it's a celebration of spring. It's a celebration of of um, of rebirth. And, you know, if you think about it today, for example, Christians still celebrate spring uh, with Easter and the theme is still rebirth. Um, and in many ways, I suppose there are flowers and rabbits and eggs and all this sort of pagan symbols that are associated with rebirth, with fertility. Um, and so in many ways, we continue to celebrate we continue to celebrate the return of Persephone in the spring. I really like that. We celebrate her descent in the harvest in the, in the fall, and we continue to celebrate her ascent and return in the spring. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. Yeah, quite, quite, quite fascinating. So the Anthesphoria, I think, is a celebration that is not so much a mystery, nor is it any in, in any way ritualistic, but it's just pure joy. So flowers, food, drink, festival. Yeah, a really good, fun times. Um, and I thought I would kind of address a couple of places where um, 
Persephone is maybe three places where Persephone is celebrated and how she's celebrated, especially since I've been talking about Minoan Crete and the Near East for so long. So I thought I'd cover the Minoan Crete. I'd cover her in Rome and I would like to cover her in Orpheism because um, Orpheism is another fascinating, Orphism, sorry, Orphism uh, is another fascinating sort of religious cult that Persephone plays a key role in. Yeah. Uh, so like I said, in the Minoan tradition, um, there were many aspects of a Chthonic goddess, uh, particular, particularly uh, a goddess that appears or the appearance of a goddess from above in a dance. So dance floors were uh, discovered in addition to vaulted tombs and dance was ecstatic. And actually at this retreat that I went to um, in Wales, we did an ecstatic dance and celebration of Persephone. So that there was this ecstatic dance aspect to celebrate Persephone in Minoan um, Crete. Um, and Homer actually memorializes the dance floor, which Daedalus builds for Ariadne in the remote past. Yeah. Uh, lots of dancing women among flowers with Persephone floating above them. Um, lots of dancing girls with flowers in Minoan Crete. Um, and lots of images of Persephone growing out of the ground. There is this old image in Minoan Crete of Persephone growing armless and yeah, armless and legless sort of out of the ground as a flower. And then her head kind of turns into a flower. Her body turns into a flower. So there is this, um, there's this, there's this, um, a, a literal connection to agriculture. Uh, now, of course, Kareni talks about the Cretans celebrating this as a mother goddess or as a Minoan great goddess. Um, and this may be the great goddess or the great mistress, like I said at the beginning, that then becomes Persephone. Um, because she is unnamed in early Crete, in Minoan Crete, because she's unnamed or referred to as the great goddess, um, we are making the connections to Persephone later on. Um, through the Minoan and Mycenaean world, by the time we get to the Greeks, you know, she's called Persephone, but the rituals are the same. The connections are the same. And so it makes sense that um, we can trace her back all the way to Minoan Crete. Yeah, so some fascinating rituals. In Rome, so now we're moving forward in time. Um, in Rome, uh, she was celebrated widely, widely in cities of Magna Graecia. And uh, they used, they called her Proserpine or Proserpine. Um, and so she was called Persepina. Um, and uh, basically, this idea of, so her, that the translation of Persepera is to shoot forward or to shoot forth. Um, this also becomes a figure later on in the Renaissance. Uh, but Persephina is also sometimes uh, associated with the Italian goddess or the Italian goddess Libra, Libera, sorry, Libera. Um, and they were often associated with the grain goddess uh, series, C-E-R-E-S, which is also seen as Demeter, which is where we get the word uh, cereal from. Um, and uh, there's this association. So Persephone is sort of multilateral here, multilateral. Yeah. Um, at La at Locri, which is a city in Magna Graecia, um, Persephone was worshipped as protector of marriage and childbirth. 
Um, so, and that was usually reserved for Hera in the Greek world, but the Romans really loved this marriage. They really loved this relationship. So I would say that in Rome, she was celebrated more for a successful marriage, uh, a marriage of fertility and wealth. And this is where we first see, you can see her have these two images. This is where we, not first, but this is where we mostly see um, her depicted more with Hades and her husband um, than her mother Demeter. Him. Um, and so there's lots, lots, lots of burial or altar depictions in which um, she is sitting beside her husband. But what's really fascinating to me, as you can see in this one here on my right, is that she is the image that is first and Hades is sort of on the opposite side of her. So we see her entire body. She is the primary visual image in um, in the images. Um, and there are stories, especially uh, like, for example, Virgil talks about how uh, Persephone is not really interested in following her mother. She's actually really dedicated or committed to her husband. So there was sort of a a movement in Rome that she accepts the role as queen of the underworld, that she actually enjoys the, the, the queen, the role as queen of the underworld. And so even though the story remains the same, that she was abducted, but that she actually welcomes that uh, role and welcomes that position and perhaps did not want to spend her entire life at her mother's side, or maybe being sort of second to her mother. And, and there is this, there is out of this comes a mythology that perhaps she ate the pomegranate seeds on purpose, that she would have to return, uh, or that she could maintain her role as queen of the underworld. So there is a lot of um, celebration of the marriage in Magna Gratia in Rome and, and, and other sort of places of Magna Gratia or cities. And um, lots of depictions of them as husband and wife uh, which is actually independent of the relationship of Demeter and Persephone. So it's the first time that we really see uh, Persephone as an independent woman, as a wife, primarily as a wife, maybe not an independent woman per se, but primarily as a wife rather than a daughter. Well, as when she's with Demeter, she is always and forever a daughter. Yeah. Um, and so lots of... Uh, reliefs for Persephone and Hades, lots of depictions of Persephone and Hades, um, some sanctuaries uh, to Persephone, a lot of independence, a lot of her mother um, in Rome and outside of the Greek world, yeah, um, in Rome or, or Greek Italy, as we might call it, yeah. And so we come to Orphism. Orphism, this story in Orphism that I would like to read to you is a bit interesting. Um, well, let me get to it and then we can talk about it. Yeah. So there is a lot of evidence from both Orphic hymns and Orphic gold leaves that tell us actually that Persephone was the most important deities worshipped in Orphism. And so what are Orphic gold leaves, you might ask? So Orphic gold leaves were um, a symbol in Orphic religion in which verses, so there were literal gold leaves in which verses were written um, intended to help the deceased enter into the best and op most optimal afterlife. 
and they were buried with the dead. So they were really messages for Persephone. These are messages that people expected Persephone to read. Um, and Persephone is actually mentioned repeatedly in these little gold leaves that were put in with the dead, which is fascinating. Um, and the idea that is mostly mentioned in these gold leaves is that the best afterlife or the best destination for the afterlife that people wanted that people wanted to strive for or were striving for uh, was a place of sacred meadows and the groves of Persephone. Okay. Um, and also a lot of the gold leaves talk about Persephone's role in sheltering the souls and those in the afterlife. Um, and the idea that as a Chthonian uh, queen, she is able to protect them and and grant them a happy and I guess an enjoyable eternity. Eternity, right? Uh, now, this is the interesting thing. In Orphism, Persephone is believed to be the mother of the first Dionysus. Okay, so we know of Dionysus, but this is the first Dionysus. In an Orphic myth, Zeus came, comes to Persephone in her bedchamber in the underworld and impregnates her with the child who would become his successor. So just whoa, right there, right? Um, and the infant Dionysus, though, this so an infant Dionysus is born, and he is later dismembered by the Titans before being reborn as a second Dionysus who wandered the earth spreading his mystery cult before ascending to heavens with his second mother, Semele. So the first Dionysus is what, what is referred to as the Orphic Dionysus. And he has an alternate name, Zagreus. And the earliest name mentions of this name in literature describe him as a partner to Gaia and call him the highest god. Aeschylus, for example, considered Zagreus either an alternate name for Hades or for his son, presumably born to Persephone. Um, others have considered uh, Haiti as a alternate or a, or a chthonic or cathodic form of Zeus, and therefore, when Zeus impregnates Persephone, and out of this a child is born, um, it makes sense. So he's not necessarily sneaking into the bedroom, but he is a cathodic form, chthonic form of Zeus. Yeah. Um, there is also some stories that talk about Zagreus being the son of Hades and Persephone yeah, that was then later merged with the Orphic Dionysus. But very, very interesting um, sources. Now, in Orphic tradition, there's only Dionysus. There's no Zagreus. Uh, but in other traditions outside of Orphism, um, there is this term. So it's a very complex kind of... Um, association between the two. Now, scholars believe that this association may have been made in 3rd century BCE by Callimachus, because um, Callimachus wrote about this on, from a source that is now lost to us. So if you think about that, that means that Persephone, in, in some ways, not only did Persephone give birth to a first Dionysus and perhaps the original Dionysus before he's reborn by Semele, but her and Zeus have uh, the child that is a successor to Zeus. So no child in the Olympic stories is a successor to, a successor to Zeus. To Zeus. Uh, but 
this individual is a gross, or perhaps first Dionysus depends on who you read, may be the successor to Zeus and a willing um, creation by Zeus himself in the sense that Zeus purposely either seduces Persephone or if he's a chthonic sort of form of Hades, you know, has marital relations with his wife. Either way, she becomes impregnated with uh, this uh, inheritor of the realm and of the Olympian power. So Persephone is a fantastically powerful and unique divinity. And I hope that you've sort of seen that <laughs> in this episode and perhaps maybe learned something that you weren't really aware of. Because I also, you know, I mean, I did a lecture on Persephone and um, I had done a lot of this work, but, you know, I had to narrow it down a little bit. But um, I just felt like there was more to be said about her and more that I wanted to say about her. And then I also had that sort of feeling that, again, you know, which is sort of my theme, I guess, for this podcast is we don't know the goddesses or the gods in the same way that, no, that doesn't sound very nice. It's not that we don't know them, but we're not taught them in ways in which they were originally worshipped in the complexities of the ways in which they were worshipped and in ways that we can take from that history and apply it to our lives, right? We no longer celebrate the harvest. We no longer celebrate the spring. We don't celebrate, we don't have rituals of ceremony um, in order to create this connection between the goddess and the earth and life and death. Um, yes, people have religions, which is great, you know, and they have their own sort of processes. But the integration of the earth, of the environment, of the darkness, of the descent of life and death in one ceremony or celebration every year is something that I myself perhaps do not experience at the level at which I think the ancients experienced. Yeah, we have some celebrations um, but they've been sort of watered down or funneled into thinner celebrations, more perhaps restrictive or I'm not sure. Um, but I really enjoyed participating in a celebration for Persephone this past weekend that involved people and community, food, an ecstatic dance, prayer, meditation, time spent outdoors, even though I'm not a fan of being outside in the cold, but time spent outdoors, time to reflect on the earth, on the fall. Like, so you are actively doing something, right? Um, a type of orthopractice, uh, orthopraxis, sorry, a, a type of practice of a ritual rather than just belief. Belief is great. Um, but I think when you are actually actively doing something, something changes, you know, something changes in in yourself. Um, and so we come to the end of our episode and uh, we're covering a bit of the gray heroes and gray romance. And I've gotten here, if you're watching it, a few pieces of fantastic art or sci-fi or fantasy art um, of Persephone and Hades. And there has been a multitude, I would say, of couple art. Um, these, this couple, this gray area fascinates our artistic collective unconscious and conscious selves. Um, this idea of a cold knight or a cold hero um, and a warm-blooded or living 
heroine. Um, the duality of the two, the dark and the light, um, the cold and the warmth has fascinated all of us. Um, and in the modern, I think in the modern creative arts, even more so. And so, as you can see here, Hades is often depicted as a sort of white-haired elf. Actually, that's kind of what he reminds me of. And now, of course, a Targaryen. Um, and Persephone is often depicted with red hair, uh, but often with flowers in her hair, um, warm-bodied, um, young. So she's in the maiden form. Um, and... a bit soft, I would say, in some of these arts. Now, there are the other pieces of art where she becomes empowered as the queen of the underworld. Um, but I suppose that what fascinates us more is the moment of seduction or abduction um, in a way in which sometimes becomes a bit complex. Like It's very difficult to romanticize abduction. I find that very difficult. Um, yeah, that's just it. That's it. <laughs> I find that very difficult to romanticize abduction. Um, so I'm not going to. But I think that there is an element of willingly going or partially willingly going. Um, and often I talk about Persephone as an individual who has no agency on her in her life um, in the sense that she has taken by Hades and she is returned by her mother so she really has she is a child she is a a product of trauma uh first of all in the taking and the abduction and then in the return the forceful return uh by her mother so she really doesn't have agency or act is not active in neither her being married off to Hades nor her rescue and yet, out of this trauma and out of this sort of almost helplessness or lack of agency, she creates, she becomes a power to be reckoned with. Not only does she rises to the equal of Hades, and some may say more powerful than Hades in that story, but then she also rises to the equal of her mother, and perhaps one can argue more, more powerful than her mother, um, because she holds the key to two things, life and death, where Demeter, of course, is the key to life um, and and rebirth uh, and uh, fertility. And so I think that Persephone is often underrated for the fact that this is a divinity that has been sort of moved from one place to another by force, whether it's maternal or husband force. But builds herself, embraces and embodies her power in a way that allows her to become a central figure, perhaps the central figure in these relationships. Is Hades the same without Persephone? Is Demeter the same without Persephone? I would say no, absolutely not. So she really centers herself you know um in a position that she's sort of been forced to adapt to and she adapts so i would say persephone is perhaps the ultimate survivor um and a, a fantastic role model for women um who may feel helpless in some ways 
in our society and empowered in other ways in our society. And so if I was to use Persephone as a guide, I would say that she is a a guide towards figuring out how to survive and how to empower yourself out of the tools that have helped you survive. I would say those are the ways in which Persephone serves us best today um, and continues to serve us perhaps even in the afterlife. So thank you so much for joining me and uh, for putting up with my, um, as, 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 um, for those of you who this is your first time listening to me, I do not edit this podcast. Um, I do not uh, chop it up. I don't do anything. And sometimes I literally think about things on the fly as I go. So I have my notes. Uh, I sometimes read off my notes every now and then. Um, But Sometimes things just come to me as we talk, or sometimes uh, I want to say something in three different languages and the languages get a bit messed up. So forgive me if every now and then there's a lot of um and I, or there's pauses. Sometimes I do that with my students where I'll be teaching and then I'll just pause because I'm trying to think my thoughts through and they'll all just kind of, that's when you really see them lifting their heads out of their laptops and looking at me uh, going, what what happened to Carla? Uh, So I guess that helps to draw their attention, but Uh, I like to think about things as I say them sometimes uh, or things will come to me as I say them or connections will come to me. And so I hope that you um, enjoy that transparency um, in this podcast and the fact that it is unedited. Um, And I like it unedited because I feel like I'm unedited. And so thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Please share and please uh, follow me on Artemis expert or the goddess project podcast on ig and all all over social media and let me know what you think um let me know what's interesting to you and there's still time to submit some questions uh for the finale podcast next week where i'll be answering uh listener questions about everything to do with goddesses or any of the apps or anything that we've done um, in this first season so thank you again for being with me i hope you have a fantastic weekend And uh, we'll talk next week. Bye, y'all. Have a great, great weekend.